This is the Sea View, the most extraordinary submarine in all the seven seas. Its public image is that of an instrument of marine research. In actuality, it is the mightiest weapon afloat and is secretly assigned to the most dangerous missions against the enemies of mankind. If the antenna doesn't receive an abort order, it's happening. Hello and welcome to another episode of the IMMP, the Intermillennium Media Project podcast for your dose of nostalgia, media criticism, and misuse of parental authority. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And last episode, we watched a, a 1961 movie. I guess you could call it a, a, an early techno thriller called Voyage. kind of. Yeah. It's called mm-hmm. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea by our pal Erwin Allen, who also created such things as Lost in Space. Yes, creator of such things as Lost in Space, The Time Tunnel, Land of the Giants, and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and as usual, we talked about the question of whether we wanted to see a reboot or a revival. And guess what? We got a reboot. We did. Because starting in 1964, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea became a TV series. It it became a TV series, but this is just a very odd entity. It feels so different. And it's named so the same. It is very different. It feels very different. You're right about that. And yet it takes all of the same pieces and assembles them, it seems to me, very, very differently. Yes. <laughs> we, we still have the Sea View, this groundbreaking nuclear submarine with giant viewing windows in the nose. We've, we've still got Admiral Nelson, who is the father of the Sea View. It was his brainchild. And os- I would say, ostensibly, the Sea View is the, the flagship of the Nelson Institute for Marine Research. We still have Captain Kane, who's the captain of the Sea View, who he kind of a- operates as Nelson's executive officer as much as the captain of the ship, yeah. it seems to me. And <laughs> captain yet, is not a thing that means a lot on the Sea View sometimes. And yet the setup is so different. In 1961, in the original movie, they made... Uh, they made such a point that this is not a military ship. This is for uh, it's a federal ship, but this is uh, it's a submarine of the the United States. I believe it was the United States Oceanographic Survey. Yeah, and yet at it, the very beginning of well, in 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 the original, it had nuclear missiles. But well, we know what the missiles were for, right? The missiles are for research. They're for research. <laughs> Like, oh my god, this is just like, like, right off the bat, it's like, so we're calling your research sub, correct? And that means you can get close enough to shoot anything if things really go sideways. Yes. Correct. It's we, like, oh my goodness, this is straight up a spy mission. We don't get the 10 or 15 minute tour of the submarine that we do at the beginning of the movie. Instead, we get a pretty quick once-over with a with voiceover narration, and the narration makes it absolutely clear this 
looks like a research submarine, but it is really a secret weapon ready to defend America. And it's so different. And yet you think about the history. It's very clear as to why that would be. It is very clear as to why that would be. And it gives this entire series a darker tone yes. than the movie. And it seems weird to say that the movie about the new, the radiation belt catching fire and devastating the land is lighter than the TV <laughs> show, but it kind of is. It is, because ultimately the movie was about, about saving the world from that. Whereas between 1961 and 1964, we have the Cuban Missile Crisis. We have mm-hmm. the assassination of Kennedy. We have the Bay of Pigs. And we have so much that has changed. We were, all, so we were in the Cold War in 1961. But the Cold War was a lot more tense in 1964. Yeah. So I could see where, where the, the audiences and the network um, expectations of the audience would be, we want something that is going to show people America's military might combined with its scientific ingenuity. Not just, we're going to do research and eventually save the world. And yeah, the sea view becomes much more of a sea view can't stop us now. (laughs) It's kind of wild. And there's also something about the fact that since it's a series, we get a lot more about the individual crew members. A lot more crew members have some specific names and characterizations over the course of a series than you wind up with in a movie. And that means instead of a general mass panic amongst the men, you get to see individual people have individual crises regularly. We don't have the Peter Lorre character. We don't have the Commodore physicist, marine biologist, lover of sharks. (laughs) (laughs) That is the most brilliant and metal series of like introduction titles ever. In season two, we do get the uh, the the chief who's named Sharky, but that's the closest we get. Yeah, and I admit there's some of these that do cause odd things to my uh, millennial brain at times. Every time they talked to Del Monroe's character, and I just I did not hear them say Kowalski. I heard a dang penguin from the Madagascar <laughs> movie. So- Kowalski, progress report. We're only 500 feet from the main sewer line. And the bad news? We've broken our last shovel. And I had to look up whether or not they named the rest of those characters off of characters from this show. And I can't tell. I don't but know. It's like, I don't know. But it's like, there's something about the fact that characters have names. Means you can call out to them and you get little side stories with them. And the the fact that there's actually less concern about going home. Like characters are implied to have things going on at home, but since everyone's on the ship, every episode, people are just kind of there and you get to follow (laughs) these characters in their life on the ship. And they're almost more stuck there. And so this Voyager to the bottom of the sea, I mean, voyage to the bottom of the sea has a bit more of a, contained crew atmosphere (laughs) and you know they there was a a pretty sizable ensemble in the movie but some of them were visitors to the ship we had the 
the secretary slash fiance of the captain, Barbara Eden. We had Frankie Avalon as an officer and trumpeter, but they all seemed like they were movie stars inserted into this feature film, as opposed to the the characters in the TV series. They seem to be we need we make a chart of what kind of characters we need for an ongoing tv series and we set them in there including some kind of stereotypical tropes to really put a flag on who this character is there's one of the characters who's a, a surfer and he keeps talking in surfer slang or mid 60s surfer slang which is fun yeah. for a while, and they do tone it down after a while, but you can see that it was like somebody at the network with a checklist. Okay, we need somebody for the young people who like surfing. We need uh, the the reassuring father figure. We'll cast Richard Basehart as Admiral Nelson. So yeah, we don't have any of the same cast. We've got recast Admiral Nelson, recast Captain Kane. Yeah, and and... It does also give a very different style when you get recasting these characters. Richard Basehart plays a much more likable Nelson than uh, previously Walter Pigeon did. Partially because he's playing a much younger man with more career ahead of him. Yes, Admiral Nelson very, in the movie was very different. Mm-hmm. Admiral Nelson in the movie would punch you and then go ahead with his plan. Uh, Richard Basehart's Admiral Nelson would talk to you about his plan and then if you continued to disagree with you he might punch you and go ahead with it but there'd at least be discussion first <laughs> and that's at least enough of a difference to really make things change yeah Walter Pigeon's version with the age difference you're talking about he was the, the grand old man and the sea view was the culmination of his career mm-hmm with with Richard Basehart's Admiral Nelson, he made the sea view because he needed a cool launch pad for his action heroics. Yes. And that brings up the other big difference is that in just in terms of style, if the if the movie was nautical rescue fiction, the TV show really is just a secret agent show that happens to have a submarine as its home base. Yes. Some of their stories are ocean-based. Some of them are just, oh yeah, the beginning and ending tags are on the sea view. Yeah, some of them are are very much like, they're just straight by. There's things that reminded me of the Avengers TV series, about the way this formats itself. Yeah. But it's like if you were to split them across the entirety of the crew... It, it's a, just a different kind of feeling there when the fact that we are bunch instead of an, a research vessel with nuclear weapons for one instance, you get the feeling that this ship is ready to fire off many more <laughs> at any time on any mission. Ah. And, you know, Captain Crane is, he's not as big a difference in terms of the kind of character he is between the movie and the TV series. And I understand that David Hedison, who plays Lee Crane in the, the TV series, he was Irwin Allen's first choice to play the role in the movie. But for schedule or other reasons, he, could not, uh, he couldn't shoot the movie, so they recast it. So maybe they rewrote it the least because that's who he envisioned when he was writing the original movie. Yeah. 
the first episode definitely does feel like it is a voyage to the bottom of the sea in some ways because the first episode of the first season is a polar earthquake will destroy civilization go go neutralize it with a well-placed nuclear bomb (laughs) yeah they they wanted to set up the same kind of tension and it, it is definitely the closest to the original movie until you get about halfway into season two, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah. But yeah, we've got the natural disaster. We've got Nelson has a plan to use a nuclear weapon, even though, well, I was going to say, even though the missiles are for research, but they aren't anymore. They're not this time. <laughs> the missiles are for blowing things up. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and I kind of love that they did this entire setup where we start out with like the sea view crew getting loaded on is attacked by enemy forces who wish to destroy (laughs) us all. And we're going to do this. And like, why do we need you? Well, there's this issue of this earthquake we know is coming and everything else. And all of this much darker, heavier feeling. We literally lost a man to a bullet wound immediately like oh my goodness and you're getting into this mode and then journey to the bottom of the sea happy (laughs) happiest little theme song music that is infectious music isn't it journey to the bottom of the sea i love how they say start and the end in case you forgot mid theme song what you were watching and even though the um the plot for the uh episode one it does have the tension of there being some other scientists who think this is not the approach don't use the nukes there's too much danger involved in that it's not as strong a resistance or an opposition as we get in the the movie partly because i think they want they don't want as much squabbling among the good guys as they had in the movie and they they were introducing the the bad guys who were very much a like the hood from Thunderbirds. Yeah, it's like a basic James Bond villain. It could have been Blofeld. And that's another thing that happens in pop culture between 1961 and 1964 is the, the increasing ascendance of James Bond and all the things that follow from that. You mentioned the Avengers and there are lots of other science, uh, science fiction-y super spy stories became very popular and they used this as a way to create one. Yeah, I mean... What what next? We're going to have like our main characters diving around with their scuba gear and their spear guns and finding giant underwater bases where people talk uh, talk about their plans to <laughs> disrupt global economies from their swivel chairs. Oh wait, season one, episode two. Very much, very much like uh, the spy who loved me, which we talked about on yes, the podcast. The the person much. who wants to destroy the uh, world above and create a super world below. It's right down to, like, checking your hotel room for bugs and planting things <laughs> and fist fights in the place and everything. Yeah, and introducing up a yeah, the Bond girl who's looking for her brother. Yeah. Yes! For her father, I think it was. Uh, yeah, it, it's such a James Bond movie in, in small episode format. And, it, and the entirety of the Sea of You is just radioing back every once in a while saying, still found nothing. Still found nothing. If you don't hear from me, I found something and I'm in trouble. Well, guys, we haven't heard from him. He's in trouble. You need us to nuke something? No, not yet. How about now? No, not yet. No, not yet. 
and I take it that that kind of like back and forth is the most of the season one that I can see. Yeah, it it is very much a a repetitive secret agent mission of the week kind of thing. Yeah. And I won't say that it's none of it really leverages the sea view and the whole ocean setting, but not as much of it as you would expect. Mm-hmm. We did watch a very epi- interesting episode, which was season one, episode 19, Doomsday. Yes. And <laughs> talk about techno thriller. This was essentially a, a Crimson Tide sort of scenario. Yeah. Like, we think we have instructions to launch the nukes because we're at war and we're no longer a research submarine. But should we launch the nukes? And can the, can the people who are responsible for doing so do so will their conscience allow them to fire these missiles and it, it's also like like this is straight up the president is calling the sea view to launch the very massive nuclear arsenal it has and then we get a very interesting like just existential crisis about what are we doing here followed by a wonderful techno thriller of we've decided not to fire the nukes the nukes have decided to fire the nukes oh no <laughs> fix that fix that now yes well we've got to nuke something sir try not to nuke us we might have to nuke us how about we nuke the bottom of the sea okay <laughs> let's try that and at least they recognize that's that's not a good thing but it's still yeah. better than an above the surface detonation let alone yeah. something that might tr- actually trigger a war let's just hope that that radiation doesn't change any sea life down there <laughs> And they do, um, they do reuse some of the uh, the footage from the original movie in the TV series, and a lot of it in there, where they have to go outside and use the manual primer for the uh, for the nukes. And I think I forget which episode it was. We do get the the fight against the giant squid used once again. We do. I'm kind of I'm kind of amazed that they didn't have like stock footage of like launching the mini subs or divers swimming out of the sea view that they went back to the movie. But there's something that reminded me of like the way uh, Thunderbirds would reuse animated scenes or like any transformation effect in any magical girl anime that's ever existed. (laughs) Like this is the sort of thing where you can make one really cool looking thing and repeat it. And they don't, they, they kind of use the movie like that. Yeah, and I mean, they might as well. They shot some of this really yeah. cool footage with a movie budget. And and interestingly, the the first season of the TV series broadcast in black and white, but it was shot in color. They, oh. they shot it in color, but I maybe it was because there were just not enough black and white TVs out there. They graded it for to be broadcast in uh, in black and white and broadcasted that way. So you can sit, find sometimes uh, stills and things from the first season that are in color, but it was never broadcast that way. Huh. And then uh. starting in season two, they are broadcasting in color as well. Does color equal lunacy? <laughs> Yeah, things do change a bit from season uh, season one to season two. Season one, at least the episodes that we saw, as as wild as some of them were, 
they were still kind of concrete, kind of believable, well, techno thrillers. It had yeah. to do with the technology of the of the sea view, the technology sometimes of the bad guys like the undersea city. And it was all grounded in at least a sense of reality. Yeah. I mean you wind up with, you know, I know, you know, the last battle, Doomsday, the human computer, secret of the lock, names like that. Season two episode titles include things like The Cyborg. <laughs> uh the monster from outer space. The machines strike back. Dead man's doubloons. <laughs> the men fish. <laughs> what are these title changes? Thinking about these makes me think that your your comparison earlier to the Avengers is extremely apt because that's another show that the first few seasons they were kind of concrete secret agent spy stories. And then it got weirder and weirder and more science fiction-y and then more science fantasy and then just plain surrealism. Exactly. You start, you start worrying about the, uh, that the writers have been into that room for too long and they're running out of oxygen. <laughs> like They're starting to go loopy in there. What's happening? And here in, in season two, episode one, we start with Jonah and the whale. Oh... Uh. <laughs> Which immediately starts out with kind of a wild thing of there of the Sea View working with a Russian scientist. Yeah, there's a Russian scientific team who, who need the help of the Sea View to survey the damage to a Russian undersea base. And I at no point in this episode do I get a sense of what they really needed to do, except maybe go down and take pictures. But yeah. that means that the Sea View is lowering a bathyscaph down to the the sea floor out of a great depth apparently so that they can check out to see what happened to this base that was destroyed by something <laughs> by something and they do and find that, out what that something is yes giant whales Giant attack whales. Whales apparently of a giant species that was believed to be extinct. And remember uh, when I said nuking be. Yeah, remember when I said nuking the ocean floor was a bad idea? <laughs> that might explain something here. Oh, you think that this uh they, they have developed very quickly. <laughs> uh, welcome to the popular recurring segment of Ian Does the Math. I got really annoyed at this episode. I got really annoyed at this episode because they said that that whale was going 60 knots. Okay. That's almost 70 miles per hour. <laughs> That's kind of fast for a whale, I gather. The orca whale, the fast, one of the fastest whales, can go maximum of 35. <laughs> That's pretty this, fast. Yeah. Like, fin whales go 23 miles per hour. This is going two to three times the speed of most <laughs> whales. This is huge. And it's, it's, yeah, it's fast. It's also very big. It's also very strong. And it's big enough to swallow the bathyscaphe whole. Yeah. <laughs> this, this thing is as big as a swallow of the bathyscaphe and pull the sea view down. And it's moving like a sailfish what in the world <laughs> submarines don't commonly move that fast and 
when the uh, when the bathyscaphe is swallowed by the whale, on board are the Russian scientist and, of course, Admiral Nelson, because he's the adventure show captain figure. He's got to be the one to put himself on the line. And they spend most of the episodes sitting in the bathyscaphe inside the whale, wondering what to do. Yeah. And and kind of like what you kind of wind up with is uh our, our brave team going in to save them walking through a a sound stage of inflated plastic designed to look like the inside <laughs> of a whale and fighting things like getting your foot stuck. This was gloriously low budget and at least inventive. Yes, it was. It got very Doctor Who-like in that sense. <laughs> yes. And, and I couldn't quite figure it out. They're inside the whale. They're in this bouncy castle. Yes. And there are hose nozzles scattered throughout spraying water into it. But it's not filled with water. Yeah. It's inside the whale is very, very dry, apparently, dry. except for these hoses. And yet the the team and this and the team that goes in to rescue the scientist and the admiral, they they dive and they, they go into the whale and they're walking around in there, but they've still got their scuba gear on, they've still got their regulators in their mouth, and we can hear them talking to one another somehow, even though they've got regulators in their mouth. Yeah, uh, uh, pa- pardon me a moment, you've got a Oh, pause there because yeah. you're having too much science moment. <laughs> we have to cut away to inside the bathosphere. To oh, continue yeah. our discussion of philosophy. Now that that's over, we can cut back to you. Please continue <laughs> your science adventure. <laughs> that's right. They do have a lot of that. Uh, uh, the 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 thoughtful, philosophical, and you know, by default, Christian American admiral and the atheistic commie soviet have to have this philosophical conversation yeah i mean the rest of it plays out as you would expect there are the the different this is the difficult to hike through the whale and eventually they get to rescue the folks there i don't know which is the weirder interpretation of the jonah story though season two episode one of this show or the veggie themed a movie version we watched this bonus commentary <laughs> on a while back on this program that uh that veggie tales movie that's you know that is not a bad interpretation i think not a bad adaptation of Jonah. yeah i could also see that group of animators though taking a crack at voyage to the bottom of the sea with the character design at some point just reinsert the kowalski status report theme here <laughs> oh goodness but yeah, it's that's the sort of thing you get in season two. It's a very different style. And it I mean, doesn't season, get any less weird as you go No, along. season two, episode two is like we figured out a way to cause people to explode. And someone's like trying to set up someone else the bomb. <laughs> and I could barely comprehend what was happening. Yeah, the, some, the bad guys have injected the Admiral with an unstable radioactive isotope and if if while he has this in his blood if he gets too close to a nuclear reactor he explodes 
I'm just. A, I just kept thinking of the little air tag pop ups you get when you leave something behind, or if something's too close to you. It's like your your admiral has been around you around the nuclear reactor for X amount of time. Would you like to disable it? Like what? I don't know. It seemed very Monty Python or something. Yes. Oh, and. And season two, episode two also introduces the thing that makes this more Thunderbirdsy than anything else. They introduce the flying sub. The flying sub. <laughs> now, I've always had a problem with the scale that they show when they're showing exteriors of the Sea View. In terms yeah. of you know how big that bathysphere is compared to the the subgiant submarine in the first episode. It but seems then the bigger on the inside. The the flying sub seems positively huge. It's taking up a huge portion of the nose based upon what we see when the giant hatch underneath the submarine opens up to let it out. But really this is just putting a nail in the coffin of the idea that this is a show that is about nautical things based on a submarine. Because with the yeah, flying no. sub, they can go any place they need to. They can get into that and fly around. They're in Washington, D.C. in six hours, no matter where they were before, it seems to be. And it just lets, again, it lets them be a globe-trotting secret agent show. Yeah. And it lets I, I them just, have a nice little launch sequence that they could reuse every time they deploy the, the sub. Exactly. And the sea view itself, uh, like, it changes design over time. It and does, I, yeah. I, tr I tried to look up, like, models of the sea view. And between the movie and the TV show and such, there's a lot of different versions, and they're not consistent. But the flying sub has tons of the exact same sort of stylized miniature model. There's something about that design that just cla like people attached to it, yeah, way stronger. It's like this chubby little manta ray type thing, and it's bright yellow. That color yellow. That was the color of the plastic sea view model that we had when I was a kid. I guess that became the signature color of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, thanks to the flying sub. It also reminded me of the much more vivid colors of things like Jacques Cousteau's Calypso in some of its artwork. There's a little bit more, weirdly enough, the like or the crane that was on that ship. There's a bit more of the high-powered, like, ocean exploration as stardom instead of just as bravery aspect that starts to come in here. And it's a bit um, more of that high-stylism. Well, I, I have to get in my obligatory uh, Wes Anderson reference, so the, it's the flying sub and, and the things that we start to see in Season 2 that make me want some kind of a Steve Zissou Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea crossover. Oh, goodness, yes. <laughs> Let me tell you about my flying sub. Just, <laughs> I saw plenty of flying sub models with a removable top so you can put little figurines around, <laughs> which is extremely Wes Anderson Conway oh, House. Very. But yeah, it, it gets kind of goofier, still watchable, but it's a very different kind of watchable. It's the difference between a serving of corn and a serving of popcorn. And I believe and I believe it starts sprinkling more and more cheese dust onto the popcorn as it goes. It does. A lot of it is that 
over-the-top techno-thriller stuff. There's an episode in which one of our officers and the President of the United States are trapped together in a bomb shelter. There are you know, plenty of ones where it's just cop and secret agent chase, chases around some exotic foreign city. And yeah. then, there, then there is an ep- a season two episode that I don't think I had you watch, but I think you're going to want to. Okay. And that is the one called... The Skies on Fire. Wait a minute, what? That's... <laughs> did they remake the movie in season two? <laughs> they absolutely did. It is, it is a tele... It's based on the screenplay. Even has that credit up front. It is the, the same story. Just told not nearly as well. Our reboot contains a reboot. Yes, it does. It's okay. Re- it's reboots all the way down. <laughs> In- and all of them have nukes for yes. research. No. <laughs> yeah, it's like in uh, in season two, episode 18, somebody said, hey, what do you know? We can use the nukes for research. Exactly. But in the, in the TV version, uh, they're at the, uh, off the Antarctic, and a meteor storm sets the southern half of the Van Allen radiation belts on fire. It's very nice of the of the naturally forming radiation belt to align itself with human concepts such as latitude and longitude. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess it could be going by magnetic poles or something, but still, it's very convenient. And the tension becomes, well, we think it's probably going to burn itself out. But Nelson says, no, that's too dangerous. Too many people's lives are going to be destroyed. We need to use my plan to use a missile to push the belt out into space and, and uh, stop the, the fire and stop the planet from heating up. And the other scientists and politicians, of all of whom are from the global north, don't want to risk that because they're afraid that Nelson's missile might accidentally set the northern part of the Van Allen radiation belt on fire. Because apparently, as long as the radiation belt is only heating up the atmosphere on the southern half of the planet, that has no negative impact on the northern half of the planet. Because, you know, when when a part of the atmosphere is has a temperature change... It stays right where that temperature change happened and doesn't affect the rest of the atmosphere. That's very convenient, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I don't really go with their physics or their meteorology here. No. <laughs> uh. Yeah, we can just heat up one part of the planet, but we don't want to... That's not going to affect the rest of it. Yeah. Oh my goodness, this is just a... Uh, oh, I might have to watch that just to figure out what in the world they're doing. I think you might. I, you pour yourself a stiff drink and, uh, and watch that episode, I think. Oh, yes. And they do have the, the sabotage plot that we see in the movie, but it's, it's one guy who... like On board the ship are some the the committee of three people who have to evaluate Nelson's plan and vote on whether or not to go ahead and and deploy it and this one guy who's absolutely against it he's using uh 
hypnotic drug hidden in a ring to convince members of the crew to mutiny and it's it's like okay how do we compress all of this into 42 minutes i i i was here finding that in season one the very very odd and over-the-top hazing ceremony for the new crew members before we get into uh nuclear existentialism to be highly awkward and weird and i get the feeling that that was nothing compared to later well that is actually based on a real tradition what the fuck if for for people i don't know if the u.s navy still does that but a lot of ships do if you if it's your first time on board a ship crossing the equator you have to be like inducted into to King Neptune's court and pay appropriate tribute to Neptune and essentially ah. be hazed by all the guys who've already crossed the equator previously in their naval career. Ah. Now, I don't huh. know of all the details that they showed, but from what I've read, yeah, it's, it's definitely a thing. That's okay, then. <laughs> huh. I hear there's something similar for crossing the uh, Arctic or Antarctic circles as well. Ah. With, and I, it was on like a YouTube cruise review video I was watching recently, and somebody was on a cruise that crossed the Arctic Circle, and you were supposed to get into a, uh, a, a t- icy tub uh, out on deck for a little while as you uh, crossed the Arctic Circle. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> At least on a cruise ship, you're then allowed to go in and get warm and drink. That's good. No, that is, yeah. On yeah. A, a U.S. naval ship, you would not be allowed to have alcohol. On the flagship of the Nelson Institute for Marine Research, even though it's a secret weapon, I wonder, are you allowed to have alcohol? The whiskey is for research. <laughs> Some of the plots would make more sense. If we were given to understand that the men on board the Seaview had access to alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't know if this is going to be a thing we watch more of, but I am scrolling forward in the, name, in the names of episodes <laughs> just to yeah. see some of these things. Yeah, we only watched a few episodes from seasons one and season two because I just wanted to make sure that you got a sense of what the TV series was like. And how dramatically different it was from the uh, from the movie. Yeah, I, I'm reading this, and it's uh, like episode 11 of season four. It's like getting thrown millions of years in time by the mysterious Mister Pem. <laughs> I, I mean, are you are you telling me that you're going to have this adventuring crew just have some random being with superpowers pop up on your on your deck and? cause mayhem and mischief that happens to possibly have a lesson about the humanity of the crew members on board or something no why yeah wait yeah and you you start the ep the the season two with uh uh being trapped inside a giant ancient being and yeah it it, it just kind of gets wild yeah hmm but it does become more clear that, uh, you know, Irwin Allen's the guy who made the Time Tunnel. He's the guy yeah. who made Land of the Giants. He later gets into more Earthbound disaster movies in the 70s, but in the 60s, the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea movie was pretty realistic and contained and, and constrained 
compared to some of the other stuff that he's done. So it doesn't surprise me that once they brought that to TV and once they had to make uh, this many episodes per season, because there were long TV seasons at the time. These were not 20-episode seasons. That they started to pull in more of these fantasy elements that his other stuff contained. Yeah, these are 26 to 30-something episodes long. That's amazing. Every single time. And for that, it's it's really high production values. Yeah. It's it's very it's not it's not quite the same photography, the cinematography we got in the movie, but it's the sets, the um the complexity of the locations and things. It's pretty impressive for a TV series. This was a spectacle. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that that made it as popular it was. It was just exciting to watch, even in black and white, then especially in color. It's it's complicated and cool and futuristic and, and exciting. Oh, and I don't know if you noticed the timestamps at the beginning of a lot of the episodes. This was supposed to be taking place in the 1970s. Oh, my in goodness. In the future. <gasps> the future. And it does seem to me, maybe I'm misremembering, but they seem to jump around. Like, they'll have something that takes place in 1974, and then something else that takes place in 1972. But, yeah, it was supposed to take place in the, the a decade into the future. Yeah, it's... Kind of like Jerry Anderson's uh, uh, UFO took place in the 1980s. <gasps> the 80s. When we all wore nar- narrow suits and drove gullwing cars. Oh my goodness, that was before my time. <laughs> uh, but sounds like we're getting towards the end of our our points here. Yeah, I suppose so. Well, it's a TV show, so uh binge or no binge? No binge. No binge? No binge. I don't it know. It didn't grab me the right way. It wasn't my kind of thing. It, I, I enjoyed it, but it just got too wild, and it was it was either so slow <laughs> or it was so wildly, weirdly fast, I just couldn't. A little bit goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say binge. I think it is, it's cool, and it's exciting enough to look at, and it, the plots don't necessarily take your full attention, so I would say, yeah, find this and binge it, if you like science fiction television. Mm-hmm. This is kind of complicated because our next question is revive, reboot, or rest in peace. So this well, is is a reboot yeah. already. Oh, this is uh, this is just an an odd one to figure out because I I think this is a rest in peace, but partially because there's a lot of other stuff that does similar. This has stuff that just feels. Common. There's a lot of other adventure shows like this. And I don't know if this one needs specifically. Now, interestingly enough, apparently, in my research of this, I've found that this is part of a set of licenses that still gets passed around and purchased and optioned. Really? Just in late 2020, uh, there was announcements from a British production group that was incl- that saying they were writing and looking into a bunch of different things, including a reboot of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Mm. So it's there's there's current looking there's current groups looking at whether or not they could do a remake right now. I, I just don't know if you need to. Whether you need to, I don't know. But there's a lot you could do with this. I mean, Netflix had a lot of success with their reboot 
of Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Absolutely. And today, the themes that you get in at least some of the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea episodes about environmental concerns and environmental catastrophe and I think there's a lot that you could do if you even if you you update this to to the the early to mid 20th century if the, if if this TV show is made in the 60s and set in the 70s have something that takes place in the 2030s or 2040s and it's it's dealing with the 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 ecological issues and the environmental issues and the maybe the political issues that we might project 10 or 20 years into the future yeah I, I, I if, would like to see that. Yeah, and this one still has some cultural relevance. Uh, I mean, apparently, like, the animated series Phineas and Ferb did episode parodying parts of this series and things <laughs> like that. I mean, I, my research, actually, I kept finding wild stuff, models of things, uh, references to it in other pieces of media. I even found a listing for the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea board game. Well, I think every TV show that had more than 10 episodes in the 1960s got a board game. Yeah, two players, 15-minute playing time. <laughs> Only a 4.9 out of 10 on BoardGameGeek.com. Oh, well. Appar- apparently, you play as a fleet of, of white, friendly submarines on the bottom versus eight black enemy submarines on the top. Yeah, that so that doesn't, doesn't sound a whole lot like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. It just happens to have <laughs> submarines. Submarines, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's Battleship with... Uh, different axes huh yeah pretty much but it's it's like this is one of those things where it keeps popping up places i'm kind of amazed i hadn't encountered this via that cultural osmosis i've described before before this episode one thing that i do know was sort of a a a cultural touchstone of this even while it was being broadcast and this is from what i've I've heard from other family members and things i've read was the fireworks oh boy yeah Every. We we saw this in the movie, but every single episode, something on the bridge bursts into flames and throws shower of of uh, showers of sparks. And again, you, you'd think you could design things in a nuclear submarine a little better, but it was exciting to watch, especially later on a color TV. The, the maneuver apparently within uh, video circles got named the Sea View Rock and Roll for <laughs> rocking the camera back and forth and having a character jump backwards and roll away as something exploded. <laughs> so that was very um, that was very groundbreaking at the time. Then you move the camera and have everybody lurch to one side. It, it, it's iconic for a reason. Something else that was iconic to me, at least personally, was. All over the ship, they've got these little Motorola radio handsets, mm-hmm. little push-to-talk things on curly wires. My dad, when I was growing up, for his job, he had a two-way radio in his car. And that man clipped to the dashboard. He had that exact type <laughs> of Motorola two-way radio handset with the little... the the, the like Bakelite housing and the push to talk button on the side, just like in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And that made my dad and his car the coolest thing in the world because I was watching these reruns and he had the same kind of radio. That was just so cool. that's fun. (laughs) That sounds amazing. At that age, anything that can connect you to this fantasy world is just amazing. It doesn't take much to be able to to connect yourself to the fantastic in that sense. Yep. 
the, the, and the, this was definitely a, a, a growing concept of fantastic as it goes. Yeah, the boundaries are very thin at that age. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, but yeah. I'm glad you enjoyed this, or at least found it interesting. Uh, I found it extremely fascinating. <laughs> I found it sometimes frustrating. And I'm very glad we watched this, even if the show didn't ca- quite grab me in the same way. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got one more episode left in May. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, uh, I'm sure I'll think of something else. I'll, I'll dive into the archives and find something else for you to uh, watch. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, in the meantime, Dad, where can they find you online? You can find me at bymatthewporter.com or bymatthewporter.omg.lol, and that's where you'll find um, pretty much anything I'm doing, including a link to YouTube, where I am reviewing movies and food and things on the Draft House Diary. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found on YouTube and TikTok as Item Crafting and at itemcrafting.com. And if uh, if you want more of the IMMP, you can go to immproject.com, and that's where you will find all of our back episodes, and also where you'll find a link to our YouTube page. And if you want to support the IMMP, you can go to immproject.com, and you can support us on Patreon, where you'd also get some additional audio content. You can also shop at our store if you like t-shirts and coffee mugs and things, and you'll find a link to that on the website. And if you want to contact us at the IMMP, go to immproject.com and either follow the link to our Discord or check out the contact page where you can either email us or you can send us honest-to-goodness mail through the U.S. mail at our P.O. Box. Oh my goodness, physical objects. <laughs> oh, and if you do contact us either on, uh, on email or Discord or send us a letter, just let us know if it's okay to read your message on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for listening. We're glad you were with us, and we hope you'll be back in a couple of weeks when we will be here with uh, with more tales of media from the 20th century. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.